Hey guys, I don't know if you know this, but I love biohacking. I love testing out new foods, new supplements to feel my best, look my best, perform my best. That's why I'm so excited that we partnered up with Neurohacker. They're sponsoring today's podcast. So this is something new, Senolytics. These are cutting edge ingredients that are making waves in the world of healthy aging. If you're looking to optimize your energy, feel your best no matter what your age, you definitely have to start researching this. This is why I'm super excited to be talking about Qualia Senolytics. See, as we get older, these things called senescent cells build up. They're basically old, worn out cells that hang around and mess things up. They cause aches, slow recovery, a general blah feeling. Think of them as zombie cells. Qualia Senolytic gives your body a kickstart to clear those out. Think of it like a deep cleaning for your body on the cellular level, making way for your good cells to thrive. Honestly, before I tried this, I was a bit skeptical, but guys, the difference blew me away. Within a few months, energy levels are through the roof. I felt sharper. My workouts felt better. This middle-aged sluggishness, it's gone. And you can take quality, this middle-aged sluggishness, mostly gone. So if you're ready to fight those aging effects at the source, head over to neurohacker.com slash success pod. That's neurohacker.com slash success pod for up to $100 off and use the code success pod for an extra 15% off your order. And just a quick disclaimer, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food or Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And this review represents my personal experience and opinions and is not a guaranteed promise or reflection of anyone else's results. I was given free product in exchange for this endorsement. Really easy thing to, uh, to point to, and that is my very first job. Avenue A Media. So I graduated in 1997 and I got my first email address in basically 95, right, uh, in college. And so the internet was just starting. And when I graduated, um, I lived in Seattle and I was fortunate enough to get a job at a company called Avenue A Media. And I looked for like everyone back then, looked for a job through the newspaper because it's the only way to find jobs back then. And there was a startup, a World Wide Web startup, and there was a couple people there. And so I called up and I went down and interviewed. Um, and it was a bunch of, it was like a couple of young guys and they were really smart and they had this idea they wanted to buy and sell ad space. Um, and no one was doing it yet and they wanted to do this online. And so I thought this was amazing, but I didn't get that job. Um, they said, you know, that they were going to go with someone else, but I could call back in a few weeks. But if I re like what I enjoy about this story is that I just stuck to it. I called back in a couple weeks and they still told me, you know what, we're, we're not hiring. You got to call back in another week. I called back in another week. They said, same, you know, call back later. And at this point in time, my father is like, you've got to take another job. This has been, you've been chasing this for two months. And I had job offers from Boeing and like Verizon and Kellogg's. Like I could sell cell phones or be in the finance department of Boeing. And I'm just a recent college grad. And I just knew that that, that wasn't for me. It just, I, it, would, it, would, it would kill me. And the reason why I knew it wasn't for me was because prior to that, in 2000, uh, I wish it was in 2000, in 1991. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's okay. Yeah, that's it's a good okay. one. Yeah. It happens. <laughs> I was 19 years old. And, uh, um, and my mom sent me to a Tony Robbins seminar. Mm. 
And this Tony Robbins seminar, for me, I grew up in a small town, Walla Walla, Washington. Uh, very, 30 people in my high school. So just, you know. 30 people? What? Yeah, yeah. I went to a Catholic school. Okay. So I was extra repressed. Um, <laughs> Only yeah. boys? Uh, no, fortunately, there was seven girls in my okay. class. <laughs> okay, a lot, a lot of options. <laughs> yeah. A lot of options. You better make up. Yeah. Yeah. And for me to go to Tony Robbins, who at the time never heard of, but I got to fly to um, California for yeah. four days to go to the seminar. I went down there and one of the things, he was like, you have to set some goals in your life. And I'm 19, I have no goals. And so we sit there and go through all those exercises he makes you do. I'm like, great, I want a million dollars. You know, I'd like to make $100,000 a year and I want a red Ferrari. You know, what other, you know, it's a pretty solid goals for a 19 year old. Mm -hmm. And... But you go through the exercises and you envision it and you believe in it. And, I, and those goals really stuck with me. Um, and so when I graduated college, the reason why I kept calling for this job and didn't go to Boeing or to Verizon or any of these other companies was because I knew that they would not help me achieve my goal. Because the kicker and the way Tony Robbins makes you do it, you have to have a timeline for those goals. So I had a timeline when I was 25. I wanted to have a million dollars, make 100 grand a year in a red Ferrari before I was 25. Um, and so I knew, and so those goals really helped me make these decisions. So a very long-winded way to answer your question of what was the, the key moment of my life that set me on my path that gave me the success. Yeah. It, was, it started out with setting those goals and then sticking to them where I knew that I needed a job that could lead to that. And then I got that job. And that job, again, was Avenue A, which turned out to be the very first ever online advertising agency. And so I was the first media buyer at that company and the first media buyer online, period. And when I started, there was about seven people. Um, and, you know, I kept calling. I eventually got that job. And that company went from seven people to 500 employees. And we went public within two years. Wow. Um, for $6.6 .6 billion. That's fast. Wow. Yeah, well, this was 97 to 99. <laughs> That's fast. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. 97 to 9. What did I do wrong in my life? This is, <laughs> this is amazing. So what was your position in the company? I was a media buyer. A media but, buyer, okay. So, but I was one of the first employees, so I got a lot of stock options. But in addition to that, when I was a freshman in, high, in college, my father gave me $5,000 because I went away to school and gave me $5,000 to buy a car. But I didn't need a car where I lived in, in Pullman, Washington. It's a tiny town. I went to Washington State University. And I put it in, I think E-Trade just, just started right around then. So I opened up an E-Trade account and I put it in Microsoft and a couple other things. But over the four years, that turned into quite a bit of money, actually. Give um, us the number. How much did it turn out to? I ended up with about $80,000 when I Amazing. graduated college. Amazing. Um, you just, had no trading experience? You just, you just put... You just, yeah, but does anyone in college have trading no, experience? No, that's what I mean. I mean, <laughs> no, that's very true. Yeah. Yeah. So you made like $80,000 and now you have... Okay, so you had some stock well, options. And so then I had an opportunity yeah. to invest because uh, they, were, they were doing their another round of funding yeah. at, at this startup. And I read this quote by Warren Buffett. It said, you know, you need to be diversified. Mm -hmm. But if you want to put all your eggs in one basket, just make sure you watch that basket really closely. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, I work here. I spend all day, every day, you know, I live, you know, sleep and breathe this, uh, this company because it was a startup and it was crazy hours back then. Um, and so why not? I'm watching this basket closely. So I put all my money into that. And I got these options at a, or about equity at a very, very low price. And we ended up going public at, at here's the crazy thing. We priced, so the pre-IPO price was priced at $17. We opened at $89. Wow. 
So I mean, this this is the peak of the bubble, like the, the, the craziness. <laughs> yeah. This is dot com. This is yeah. Yeah. So our yeah, the, the day before, like our friends and family shares that you got to offer everyone was seventeen bucks, and then the next day was eighty nine. Yeah, wow. it was it was amazing. My equity was sub a dollar, so it really. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great experience to be 24 years old and go through that and have this front row seat to the this this global phenomenon of euphoria, which is called the dot com bubble. Right, yeah. we, we got to like everyone is making money over those years. Everyone's pouring money into these companies and they're all going public and and really uh, getting that experience was invaluable. You know, no, I was going to say how how. Um, fortunate you are to align with the right company because everybody now in their 20s like i don't think back then working for a startup was as sexy as it yeah. is right now but now everybody tries to work in a startup and a lot of them spend a lot of their career chasing after that early stage equity really great strike price you know and they all fizzle out and they they waste a lot of good years and it's hard to pick it's i don't also, think it was about the sex i think the the influence the influence from Tony Robbins when you were nineteen where you said no okay, I'm just talking about other line. kids I'm talking about other kids early on in their in their careers no yeah absolutely yeah yeah I mean that's why also you know Malcolm Gladwell in his book Tipping Point he he writes about a lot of the factors that 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 enable people to become very successful and a lot of it is essentially being in the right place at the right time and and I truly graduated in the right place at the right time fortunately I lived in Seattle so it wasn't a tech hub it wasn't San Francisco but still it was a, a hmm. tech hub but those years of ninety seven to two thousand is the best time still probably to date to ever graduate because kids tried out of school. I mean, my job when I started, cause it was at the beginning of the bubble. So I got paid $23,000 a year, but within a year and a half, I was making a hundred thousand dollars at that company because they were just paying people insane amounts of money. Like if wow. you remember, they were hiring every tech company was hiring as many people as possible. It was absolutely crazy. What did you, what did you learn going into a startup when no one else understood what it is? working over there coming out from the other side when it's already a public company moving into your next venture what did you learn from the, what was your biggest takeaway so when we went public you know i i decided i'd work long enough you know i put in my whole two years <laughs> <laughs> so hard <laughs> and and i uh, rewarded myself with 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 the achievement of my goals i bought a car and the red ferrari the red ferrari Good. on my wow. 25th birthday yeah, and uh, and I moved to LA. Um, and when I look back, the characteristics that I really learned there was I, I found that I was very opportunistic, overly opportunistic, and overly optimistic because my entire professional two-year career, everything was a home run. Like every company you saw, every stock went up as I moved to LA on top of the world. Unfortunately, the bubble burst like right after that, right? And so most of my wealth at that point in time was paper money. It was mm. in stock options. It was in illiquid stock because it was still locked up. Fortunately, I still made, you know, I was able to cash out and still do, do very well. But I, I lost a significant portion when the bubble burst, right? We went from $89 and our low after the $89, that company stock went all the way back down to 72 cents. Oh, okay. So that's a little bit. <laughs> 72 from, from $89. $89 to 72 cents. It went back to, to it's all, it, it ended up selling for $6 billion in cash. It went back to, um, with, with splits, about a $35 stock share. Mm -hmm. But the company ended up selling for $6 billion a number of years later. So it, it, it definitely, came back. Yeah. yeah, it came back. Um, it sold to Microsoft. It was the largest cash transaction in history at the time. And then a few years later, it turns out to be the largest write-off a company did <laughs> off their balance wow. sheet. Yeah, it's it an interesting story of yeah. Avenue A, Razorfish, and over the years. 
But sorry, back to what I learned. A hell of a coincidence, huh? To just consistently try to work in that company and having all that roller coaster. Yeah. Well, I left the moment it went public. Okay. Yeah. So I was 20. I just was about to turn 25. I left, bought the car, moved to LA. And, and I was very optimistic and, and opportunistic. And so that kind of set the tone for what I did over the next couple of years. And I moved to LA and I started my own company because I had this experience in online advertising. I was the most experienced online media buyer there was because I did it longer. Um, and and we started my own kind of brokerage company. It's called Traffic Marketplace. And it was an ad network, like one of the very first kind of ad networks. And what we created there was the pop-up ad. So after that, I invented the pop-up ad. We, we, we made it more of a mainstream advertising unit. If you recall way back in the early 2000s, late 90s, if you ever went on an adult website and closed out, you get the exit traffic. That you was exit you, out. Well, I didn't do that. We, we, bar, we, we took that concept. and it caused made, me a lot of problems when I was a kid. <laughs> I'm just, I want to know if it was you. Yeah. yeah, and we took that concept and put it into mainstream websites. And so that's how we popularized the, the pop-up and the method of media buying called arbitrage yeah. um, and, you know, brokering ad deals. This and, and that was your company that you built up? Yeah, in, okay. yeah, in 2000. Yeah. Okay. And how was, and building your first company, because, you know, you make it sound so simple. You just pivoted from a successful startup that IPO to just accidentally, you know, building a successful company. There's a lot of effort and energy and probably a lot of, like, things that didn't go right when you built your first company. So, um Walk me through some of the, the, the biggest screw-ups, the biggest things, headaches, whatever that you encountered. Because the first-time founder, there's always stories. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you one of the most valuable lessons I learned from that world. Because you got to recall, this is uh, 2000. The bubble just burst. All these companies that went public, uh, like Homestore, uh, were desperate for revenue. And so there was a lot of companies like Traffic Marketplace at that time that were we were ad brokers basically we were buying and selling ad space and, and pushing our revenue and a couple other companies were round tripping the revenue and and home store being a public company it would buy a ton of of ad space on one site and then they would buy it back and then sometimes it wouldn't even run but they would inflate their numbers mm. so we saw this happening and why it was the reason why it was so valuable for me is because some other companies were doing it and i knew the founders of those companies they actually ended up going to jail they, like Homestore, you know, there's a big scandal back then and there's a handful of companies that were um, caught up in just facilitating the inflation of your revenue numbers. And obviously that's illegal when you're mm, a public company. But for me to witness that, being another naive young guy, being like, oh, these are fast and loose playing deals. But then witnessing some other people that I actually knew, like get in real trouble at such a young age for me yeah. was really valuable because... I just, it made me keep my nose very, very clean throughout the rest of my career because I saw it firsthand and I just look at back at that and uh, it's, it, was, it was a good lesson. Yeah, it's just, it's like a crossroad. It's a moral crossroad when you, when you grow your business where you can see things people don't see because it's your business and you're so tuned into it and you noticed something that's on the gray side, but you know that it's actually on the dark side and you shouldn't go there and you ask yourself, should I go? And money can corrupt people and just very hard for some people to go and make the right turn instead of the left turn. So you took the right turn and then eventually things happen and you're like, thank God you moved on. Yeah, for sure. And just to, to, to because it, it gives you that experience that, that bad things can happen. Yes. Like, especially being at a young age and, and you having think you're invisible. Exactly. And then yeah. seeing that some of the people I knew, I was like, wow, that's, that's 
Yeah. So how did you how did you pivot from marketing, ad buying, media arbitrage into crypto? What was that? Yeah. So after Traffic Marketplace, um, I had a handful like from there what I learned. So, you know, the optimism really the the optimism was important because I believed everything was going to work. I just, I stuck, even after the bubble burst, I believed all these companies were going to work. And so then I was very opportunistic and I would chase down every single opportunity because I thought they were going to work. And so for these next 10 years, between about 2002 and 2013, when I, before I got into crypto, um, I learned to be an operator mm-hmm. because I chased down a hundred different types of business deals and I probably started another 10, right? You yeah. chase them all down and you do the ones you can because you think they're all going to work, they're going to be great. But I learned the skills, the foundational skills of being an entrepreneur, of starting of a company and, and knowing enough about all of the departments and the divisions that it takes to start a company, like from legal and HR and hiring and marketing and sales and then selling the company and then taxes and, and everything. And so when, and I started a, a couple other companies, um, sold them. I had one of the very first ever um, on the company, we created webisodes, it was brand funded content. So we would produce um, short form videos for the internet and have them sold by brands. The other company that came out about the same time as Funny or Die. Um, yeah. yeah, and so I had one of these companies, I sold it to a large ad network. And so we produced tons of content. But Funny or Die just sold, I wanna say like about a year ago or so, and they yeah. just exit. Yeah, Funnier Die's been around for a while. And yes. they, it's the best example of kind of that short form content that all started. And that was like 2006 or seven. But, um, but I sold that company and I had a, another, uh, and then I- so, so did you sell also the ad agency company? Yeah, so we sold Traffic Marketplace to Vivendi Universal. Okay. Um, and then I left, I took a couple years off. I was 26 and I kind of just traveled, just, I hung out in LA. And How long really did you take myself. off from? Like two years. two years, but I did some other things. I started a production company. We did 150 music videos. And this you, was, you, you default to creative a lot. You, yeah. you do default to creative a lot. I just, I, I'm just like trying to figure out the left brain, right brain dichotomy and all the different ventures you take on. Because you, even now, like you're working on creative stuff and marketing stuff and you were originally ad creative and then you want, like, it's interesting. And then somebody who comes Completely like, different, right? From, from the type of person that I would assume would take on a project like Tether, it's a very different personality. But it's obviously you straddle both very well. Well, that's where the optimism comes in. Like, I'm like, oh, Tether. Like, well, what happened was I, I learned about the internet. I, I sold a hand, I sold three other, two other companies before. Yeah. And then... And then my friend, you know, in 2013 started telling me about the blockchain because I'm like, look, let's do something. I, I'm, I'm ready to do. I, I wasn't I sold a company. Yeah. I was just ready to do the next thing. He started telling me about the blockchain. So I started buying Bitcoin. And and when he told me about the, about the blockchain, I'm like, well, this is amazing. Uh, it's it's got to work. It makes sense. Like, you know, we can move money in a new way and fast. And you know, then I would talk to other people that knew a little bit more about finance and technology. And they're like this the blockchain is a scam it's not going to work i don't even understand what you're talking about and those that did say it, it's the worst thing ever but i'm like ah sounds good to me and <laughs> i love it yeah but, but entrepreneurs it. need that almost like naivety towards what they're building right yeah. exactly like, especially when you layer in then then so why don't we go take the most highly regulated asset in the world the dollar and put it on a brand new technology that allows you to send any amount of it anywhere in the world, to anybody, anonymously, you know? You think we're getting any trouble for that? Oh my God. 
so so we, we just dove in. I'm like, well, at least I'm, I'm enough of an operator to understand how to make all this stuff work. And I'll understand the, the, the nuances of the technology and the business as we go. And at the time, there was only Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and, and I'm sorry, there wasn't Ethereum. Bitcoin, Litecoin, Dogecoin, a handful of cryptocurrencies back in 2013, 2014. Yeah. Um, and, and so... There just wasn't much awareness in this space, but we had the concept. It's like, great, there's a new way to move money, the blockchain. There's a new type of money being moved on the blockchain, cryptocurrencies. But that type of money, people, it's volatile. volatile yeah. yeah. So why don't we move real world currencies on this new financial infrastructure? So that was the impetus of Tether. And then we had to build the technology to tokenize an asset so we could put it on the blockchain. So we... There was a company at the time called MasterCoin, which turned into Omni, but we, we took that technology, improved upon it so we could actually tokenize the dollar. Um, and, and then we rolled it out. And what I still say to this day is that the elegance of Tether's business model is in its simplicity. You give me a dollar, I put it in the bank, I issue you a token, that token works on a blockchain, send me the token back, I give you the dollar. I mean, that is it. And Tether mm. has stuck to that the whole time. And sticking to that, as long as all that money is in reserve and it is in the bank, sticking to that will ensure that Tether stands the test of time and can handle anything that comes at it. For instance, when Terra Luna collapsed, there was a $13 billion run on the bank. Mm -hmm. Tether reimbursed every, you know, refund, uh, let people withdraw $13 billion. Not many financial institutions in the world could withstand that level of withdrawals. And the reason why that that the simplicity of Tether's business model is so important, when I, especially when you think of Terra Luna and these algorithmic stable coins. Those are experiments. People don't know if that's going to work or not, right? There's a t bunch of smart people trying to figure out an algorithm that says, well, if you do this and that, then this will be pegged. Yeah, but what's the difference? So if you're saying, okay, I put my dollar, now I get a token from Tether, why is Terra Luna any different? Because you don't give them a dollar. Terra Luna is an algorithmic-backed token saying that, we're going to buy and sell. We're going to do these different types of transactions to make sure our token stays right about a dollar. Mm -hmm. There is not a billion dollars in the bank for a billion dollars of Terra Luna, I so gotcha. you can always go to the bank. They're, they're, they're relying on a formula to, to pay Which interesting. The, the Obviously dollar. did not work. Right. So. And, yeah. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that, I guess the question was, how did I get into crypto? And, and that's how. And, and why did I get into crypto and dive in? Because I'm a believer. <laughs> like, I'm yeah. a believer in opportunities that are presented to me. Can you, because um, I, I know a little bit about Tether and stablecoins, but I'm not obviously as in, involved in it as you are. So can you even just walk through the landscape? Because it seems like something as simple as a business model as, hey, put in a dollar, get a token. That doesn't seem to be a business with much of a moat. Yeah, <laughs> a great point. Try to raise money. They're like, well, yes. what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you can't raise money. That's why I self-funded in the beginning. Then we raised a little bit of cash. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Um, because when you go to someone and say, well, first of all, forget about the mo. They're, they're just, they just think you're crazy when when we tried to roll out the so early model on. of Tether. Yeah, they're like, it made no sense to anyone. There wasn't people trading much cryptocurrency back then. I mean, the the whole market the whole market cap was like. Two to three billion dollars when when we when we started. Wow! Of the entire market cap, you know, that's, just hit three trillion. <laughs> so that's it's nothing. grown a lot. Yeah. Um, so there wasn't much going on, and but Tether provided a dollar-based trading pair. So at first, which was actually, to be honest, wasn't the first 
reason why we started it. We thought it'd be a better way to move money, but, but it turned out that if you trade cryptocurrency, if you're moving from Bitcoin to Litecoin, you're, it's two volatile assets. You needed a stable coin, a dollar-based trading pair to trade so, against. So that, that, that's when my very elementary question is gonna come. <laughs> if I give you a Bitcoin for Tether, you would have to exchange the Bitcoin to a dollar. Correct. In order to keep it at where it was. And then the transaction fee has to make sense that you guys don't lose money between tr changing the Bitcoin to dollar. Well, you pay the train. If, if you pay, we, okay. Yeah, we would only, to issue tethers, um, we would only accept cash. Now, oh. what, what you would do is you would take your Bitcoin to an exchange, change and that exchange it. would turn it into tether and they'd take fees for it. I understand. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. So you kept it very simple. Just. Yeah. Okay. What's the difference between Tether and, like, for example, USDC? So, in theory, the, the same structure. Okay. Right? They, they, it's it's a hundred percent asset backed. Okay. okay. Um, and USDC, you know, Circle is uh, more heavily regulated by the U.S. because it's a U.S. company, and Tether is is not based in the U.S. So you built this up. Walk me through like the the selling of the company. Why you chose to sell? maybe the the life after tether because even funny enough before we jumped onto this podcast i was like how do you you know how do you want to be introduced what's the persona and obviously tether's huge yeah so it's it's very much tied to you but you've built a ton of stuff since then yeah well and i'm extremely proud of tether it's an amazing i don't want to say gift but this it was an amazing creation that 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 laid the foundation for the cryptocurrency ecosystem and so so i am proud of that and it and it has standed the uh, withstood the test of time and the new operators the people who have operated and who are really actually responsible for its massive growth because tether didn't really see significant growth until 2017 until the whole market picked up yeah. but they have done in my opinion an amazing job at at battling all the FUD to yeah. date, all the negative news, and sticking to the promise of ensuring anyone can redeem their Tether for a dollar at any time. So, so Tether, is yes, is, it was an important contribution to the space. But after that, the, the reason I sold Tether was, you have to again go back to 2015, Bitcoin had a huge run. It went up to $1,100, maybe $1,200, I don't recall. $1,100 or $1,200 from $100, you know, uh, like within a, a number of months. So lots of enthusiasm. But then the market crashed and it went back down to basically $100, $180. Um, and Tether, you know, we were trying to build this company. It, it wasn't getting a lot of traction in the beginning, but what it was getting a lot of was heat because it's a very regulated space. Um, if you want to move money, you have to have money transmission licenses in every state and all of this. And so really going down that rabbit hole of regulation and banking and everything, and me being a U.S. citizen, I held all of that liability on my shoulders and on my back. And when you're thinking about, okay, the only way this company is going to be financially successful and lucrative for us as the founders is if it's the biggest company in the world. Because mm -hmm. our only business model is if we have billions of dollars in the bank. That's right. Yeah. You know, that's a big if. Turns out there's tens of billions of dollars in the bank. But at the time, I'm like, you know, I have a lot of liability here. And 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 Bitfinex was our partner. The, the principals of Bitfinex were our partners in the beginning. And they were all offshore. And so it was easy to, so they took it over. And it just existed as a product of the exchange for a while. And then really, really exploded on the scene. In Do you feel it's part of your, who you are, identity, when you walk around and you say I'm, the co-founder of yeah. uh, Tether. Yes, and yeah, 
Yeah, it is, especially in the crypto space, right? Mm-hmm. It was my first crypto company, and and inventing the stablecoin is is a, is a great contribution. But it wasn't the last one because after that, after I left Tether, another brilliant visionary, a, a friend came to me, and who is an extraordinary business person, but really his his vision is. He he had the vision for this next company, and 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 he's like, look, let's let's create something that's not going to be regulated right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Let's take since now there's this technology to tokenize things. Let's tokenize collectibles. Let's tokenize tickets. Let's create highly programmable digital goods. And this is in 2015. There was no word for NFT. It was way before. Yeah. yeah. And so we created the very first ever NFT platform. So after the stablecoin, the next contribution was of the NFT. We called it something different in the beginning. We called it a VATM, a virtual atom. We had to come up with our own word to say, what are these tokens that you actually own now? And they're highly programmable and can do things. And so that company started in 2015. We raised a couple million dollars but, but it, and built some, some really amazing tech. But then when the ICO craze hit in 2017, because you got to think, between mm-hmm. 2015 and 2017, the, market, the, the crypto market crashed. And it was kind of a lull. It was pretty dead, actually, for a while. Ethereum did their crowd sale in 2015. They didn't release a product for two years. It took until 2017 for them to actually release mm-hmm. the product. Well, it might have released a little before, but then it took a while for anyone to come up with a use case. So there's these smart contracts. No one understood what they were or what they could do. And the first real use case became the ICO. Mm. And that's what drove up, one, the increase of value and tether of the money and that, but also drove the entire market. Mm. It, 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 it shot Bitcoin from you know, one to 3,000 up to $20,000 because so much time and attention uh, and awareness and attention was, was, was on the crypto space. The reason being is because everyone was gambling. Yeah, it was just a big gambling play. Yeah. Pure big, gambling. It's like yeah. how, now you have access to all these startups, and yeah. and anybody can invest, and there's no and there's instant uh, liquidity. Yeah. yeah, right. It's a token, and you can sell it right away. Yeah. It's a new exchange. It's open twenty four seven. So so we jumped on that bandwagon because we had some amazing technology, and I did an ICO. So then I raised twenty two million dollars in October of twenty seventeen. So it was the tail end of the ICO window, the yeah. ICO bubble, because at the end of that year, you know, beginning of twenty eighteen, the ICO Close. just crashed. There was only about a hundred total ICOs that raised over twenty million dollars, and we were one of them. I think there's about a thousand ICOs in total. Um, but out of those hundred, there's only very very like very few left. And I'm proud to say, and I do say this a lot, that that Block V has delivered on all of its ICO promises. The technology is still in use and the token still is in use. But here's the interesting thing. What we got wrong was marketing. We didn't market it. We didn't pump the token. Because now as we all, in retrospect, we all know that that's all that matters. And here's the best example of why marketing is the only thing that matters when it comes to token value. This is that's a big statement. That's a generalization. But the reason I say that is look at the meme coins. Look at Doge. These coins are worth tens of billions of dollars. But it's all garbage, though. That stuff. Well, is, that's so, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah it's I know. All it's marketing. All, it's all There's marketing. no tech. Yeah, I know. That. I built extraordinary tech. Didn't do the marketing. So our token it did go up 20x. But that wasn't anything I did. That was the that was the hype cycle of the ICO. Yeah, you know something. This is this is something I, I was. I was think, thinking, when is the spot where I'm going to ask you about that? Because I think that anything related to crypto, from NFT, uh, if it's metaverse, if it's any kind of crypto, it was all around the winners or marketers. Even if it's for a short period of time, because then there's going to be a miserable collapse like Shiba Uno and, and Dodge, right? 
It really comes down to organized marketing where they had organized groups on Reddit and they would pump it and maybe Telegram and Discord. Tele- and yes, yeah. very, very organized. Eventually everyone were doing that and and so on. And today it's it's much different, right? People want to see faces. So that, that opportunity disappeared. So then Tether really stood the test of time. Well, but block V2, uh, I guess. Well, yeah, that's true. Not as big as Tether, obviously. But I mean, but I mean how did Tether promote himself eventually? I mean, was it just organic? No, pure utility. Pure usefulness. Utility, okay. There's no need to promote. Like People are like, oh, should I invest in Tether? I'm like, well, if you need to ask, if you're asking that question, the answer is absolutely not. Because Tether is not something you invest in. Mm-hmm. Tether is a dollar and it stays a dollar. Yes. You can invest in Bitcoin, Ethereum, any other crypto you'd like, but you don't invest in Tether. You use Tether. It's just a utility for the, for the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So it didn't need to promote itself. It just was so useful. And for the first five years, it was the only stable coin. There, there, there weren't any others. And then they started coming out, I think maybe 2017, 18, a couple others started trying to do it. Um, so, 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 so there's that, the, the answer to that. And, and at Block V, we didn't promote the token enough, but we built some amazing tech. And so yeah, you, built a start, you built a company. Yeah. Like you should, but that's the thing. A yeah. lot of people don't build companies, right? That's the issue with Doge and, and Shiba Uno. All the, it's, it's a marketing place. What's yeah. the difference between, um, between you, did a good job. you and uh, say Dodge? Because that's, that's a token and that's a token, right? So right. what's so, the difference? So it, there, there's no utility other than it being a token okay. and it trading on a blockchain. What Doge did was they forked, they copied yes. Bitcoin, like within, you know, I don't even know when Doge came out, probably twenty. 10 or 11 or 12, yeah. a very long time ago, they forked Bitcoin and all they changed was instead of 21 million, it's, they're, they're, endless, yeah. it's endless, right? Yeah. So it's, it's nothing, but they just had this community and mm-hmm. people believe and they buy and then Elon pumps it. And, and that's all, that's what, that's what takes to raise prices. People just, there's demand, Marketing. supply and demand. Yeah. And, but we built some extraordinary technology at BlockV. And so then what happened was my partner there, the, the visionary behind BlockFi, went and he started a company called Vatim Inc. And I started a company called Smart Media Technologies. So we both built new companies on top of this technology to deliver NFTs to the world. So Smart Media Technologies today is one of the largest enterprise Web3 platforms that there is. We deal with some of the biggest enterprises in the world. And we provide the wallet infrastructure, mm. the ability to create NFTs and metaverse environments. So we are leading the charge in the Web 3.0 movement for large brands and organizations to connect to their consumer on a one-to-one level through the wallet. Because when we get to Web 3, the killer app, unlike Web 1 and 2, the killer app has been email forever. In Web 3, it's going to be the wallet. The reason being is if all you have is an email, the only thing you can receive from brands and anyone else is information and spam and a lot of annoyance. Like, like, especially when they're marketing to you, very, not very often is it very valuable. Yeah. They now have the tools to actually give you value because now you're going to have your email address and you're going to log into a website, but there's going to be a wallet attached to that email address. And now that the brand has a wallet attached to it, he can actually send you cryptocurrency or NFTs. So let's touch on NFTs a little bit, and then I'll dive more into it. Because I think that's important. So you, yeah. you're delivering the platform to communicate between the business and the consumer, but then the question comes up, okay, so great, I've, I'm a business enterprise, deliver an NFT, and you're probably going to go into this. Okay, yeah. so what next, right? Right, because especially when, when we talk about NFTs and the hype that you guys just, or that we all just experienced, yeah. the hype from 2020, again, that was just like ICOs, the NFT hype, 
pure gambling. People are like, I don't understand NFTs. It's like, because you're, you're overthinking it. These <laughs> these guys are degens for a reason. <laughs> they are gambling. They are just, yeah. it's just the frenzy. They're, they're, they're having a great time, hopefully making money and hopefully not losing too much. But it drove a ton of awareness into this space and it, and it changed consumer behavior. It enabled people to understand what a wallet is and place value on it. And also place value on digital objects within that wallet. Because before the last few years, no one no one cared unless you were a gamer and had like inventory in the game and you placed value on that. But other than that, no one cared about digital wallets or digital goods, but now the world cares. And so now brands can use this shift in consumer behavior to deliver them value to the wallet. Mm. And here's the best way to explain that. Think about to date, how much brands spend on online advertising. So this year, it's about 250 billion in the US, 571 billion worldwide. That's what's spent by brands on digital advertising. Guess where all that money goes? It goes to the middleman, the planners and the buyers, the technology. Agencies. It goes to the agencies and it goes to the websites, Mm -hmm. to Apple and to Facebook and to Google and to all the the websites. Everyone who has the data. All $571 billion goes to everyone except the consumer. The consumer. That's all the brand wants to reach. Web3 and the wallet gives the brands the tools to actually give that value to the consumer. So you can go and say, I'm enabling ads and I will get paid for the ads that I'm displaying on Web3 or the wallet. Why? Why even have an ad? If this brand wants to market to you and why would he spend $5 to get that ad in front of you? Why does he just give you $5? Look, we're five. Coupons, all right. Right. Exactly. Coupons, loyalty, all that. So when you think about loyalty programs Mm -hmm. to the past, they're kind of lame and maybe some people really enjoy it. And sometimes you get some points and sometimes there's a lot of value and sometimes it's just entertainment to get points. But loyalty programs are important, but they're about to get a hundred times more important in the future through Web3. So what you think of your loyalty program of the past where you get some points, now the loyalty programs of the future with Web3 wallets are gonna provide you, the consumer, real value. Because the brands have, the brand now has a tool to put that money in your wallet. Never, never been done before. The brand will have a one-to-one relationship to the consumer to market to them into their wallet. And they'll will provi- they're not gonna just give you $5, they're gonna give you a, a a smart coupon that says, well, if you buy these two things, this third one's free, and if you send it to five of your friends and they buy, you're gonna get a free pair of shoes. Each coupon's gonna be highly programmable because that's what programmable NFTs are. So back to what I was starting with, when people say they don't understand NFTs, is NF- are NFTs dead because they collapse? Like, no, that's NFT 1.0. That mm-hmm. was gambling. That was the buying and selling of digital images. That's trying to sell, create a community around a, an ape. NFT 2.0 and beyond are NFTs with actual utility. They do things like loyalty. And so now you're going to get this stuff from a brand that's really valuable. Because let's say the brand, let's say it's Nike and they give you this digital pair of tennis shoes that turns into a free pair of Jordans. But let's say you hate Michael Jordan or don't like tennis shoes. It's still valuable. In the past, you couldn't trade out your loyalty points. But now you have this digital good you can put on a marketplace and sell it for something that you do care about. So now all the brand communications, when it, beca- when it, when it is in an NFT in your wallet, can become valuable to you because you can well, trade it for something else. When is it going to really else. be a reality? Because uh, Web3 obviously came out after, I mean, mostly for the masses during the NFT time. 
And there was a lot of excitement because they said it's decentralized internet, no one can shut you down, you can speak freely, no one can. There was a lot of reasons, a lot of, I would say, emotional reasons for some, but, but ultimately, again, just decentralize. Just let's just go and continue the philosophy. But, but yet, do, do, when do you think we're going to actually see a shift where majority of the young generation, Gen Z or younger than them, I don't know what the term is for younger Gen Gen Z. I don't know the generation. Gen Z. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to say, no, I'm not going on this one. That's centralized. I want to go on decentralized. And really, we're going to be able to see. So when you get mass adoption? Yeah, well, well, once you have critical mass that it's worth it for you to invest your time into it. And so there's two things you're touching on. One is decentralization versus centralization. The other is Web3. And the problem is, how do you define Web3? Everyone defines it differently because one one definition is a decentralized internet. I believe that's way much farther in the future okay. because the easy use for decentralized technology isn't there for the average consumer. Mm -hmm. It's hard to set up a web wallet, especially yes. if you don't use a system like Coinbase or yeah. three months ago, FTX, yeah. right? <laughs> you know? I heard uh, of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the centralization offers a ton of, of value now, the drawback is, you know, it can be corrupt and fraudulent, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it does offer ease of use value. Now, that's slightly different than what I like to call like Web3 1.0. Like, what's the first version that we're going to experience of Web3? How is the, how, like people have heard about it, but no one's experienced it yet. Mm -hmm. It's not tangible. And that, that's kind of your question. When is it going to happen? The decentralized version of it, I think, is, is, is much Far. further out. But what we're going to experience soon, I think everyone will, the, the majority of people will start experiencing it in some sense in, throughout 2023, is that you'll now have a wallet. You might not need to go set up a wallet anywhere, but the next, but soon you'll go to a website and if you log in or sign up, you'll get a wallet and they'll give you an object because they'll give you an incentive. They'll say, enter this sweepstakes to win a free backpack. You're like, great, I love Fjall Raven, it's cool. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it. Each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works. One data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary.
I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, 
the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Funky brand, yeah. I want their 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 Konkin backpack. So you'll enter a sweepstakes, you'll get a digital backpack in your wallet, you send it to two friends, you get, you get two more entrants into the sweepstakes, and they'll do a drawing every week. So it'll be a more gamified loyalty experience. So you're, you're, so you're basically saying Web3 1.0 is centralized companies deploying decentralized technology. For Well, deploying, let's get away from... Because I'm trying to understand also the internet part behind this. How is it different? I mean, if... Well, no, because I do understand. I do understand the added value of a loyalty program. Where, so if I... Yeah, but that's a marketing. My point is that, okay, so if it sits on Amazon web servers... How is it different just because you download a wallet like MetaMask that doesn't sit on a very slow, not very... It's not functional. necessarily different. We're, we're, we're talking about a couple different things here because I agree with exactly what you're saying. A lot of this quote unquote Web3 stuff that I'm speaking about, like loyalty programs and ticketing and all this stuff, it does not need to be decentralized in any way, shape of or form. Of course not, yes. So it's a new... But, but consumer behavior has shifted because mm -hmm. now we understand wallets. Look... COVID, one of the things that was beneficial from it is it introduced the U.S. to QR codes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> People now That's know how to true. use QR codes, yes. which is a great thing for NFTs and digital objects because now you can just scan something and instead of going to a website to read information, you're going to get an object of value. So if that brand wants to give you this NFT that's actually valuable, it's really easy to get now. Yeah. And so consumer behavior has changed. You know what QR codes are, you place value on wallets and the digital goods within those wallets. And so... The first version of what people are going to start experiencing is they're going to have a wallet and it's going to be filled with stuff and that stuff's valuable. And most of it's going to come from brands because those are the people that want to give consumer yeah. value. Um, why did you Why did you want to stay away from the word deploying? Like what's, because if I'm in that- Decentralized? No, 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 in centralized. Because I said your version of Web3 1.0 is centralized companies. Like your company's a centralized org. Yeah, yeah. You have, you know, you're an org chart, you're a centralized org, but you're, you're creating decentralized widgets for people oh decentralized yes I, I see what you're saying you're spot on sorry yes now the nfts that those people have yes. in their wallets they can work on any blockchain correct or yeah. a centralized blockchain you know a closed loop blockchain if you want but but yes they have the 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 objects interoperable and this is this is a slide i just showed earlier today which is from or i will describe the slide i showed earlier today which is maybe one, we can find it and yeah. stick it in the video somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Is, is one that I created in 2017 when I was doing my, my ICO roadshow yeah. to describe how big of an opportunity we have in front of us about these interoperable digital mm -hmm. objects. And I called it the trillion object opportunity because 
There are millions of apps and a billion websites, but there will be a trillion objects. And think about how much value has been created through apps and through websites. No value to date until, well, when I was pitching this in 2017, there was no value in objects. And now the first year that NFTs hit the scene, they went from zero to $27 billion of sales in, in NFT revenue, in, mm -hmm. I think in 2020, yeah. right? It exploded on the scene. That's the trillion object opportunity. That's why I'm sharing it with people now. It's like NFTs, it's not over. It's, we've just scratched the surface on the yeah. use case. Every, every, everything you do in your digital life moving forward is going to be an NFT. All the, the objects of value in that life will be NFTs. They'll be in your wallet and, and you'll get value. I got another ele very elementary question again. I love we're, it. No, we're not, good we're not the crypto people over here. Uh, you got um, to take, take everything in your brain. And again, yeah. like when, when you want to bring people into the industry, it is very important that like you take all these concepts because it's going to affect your day to day. Yeah. So. In years from now, that, that information is going to be valuable for but uh, people would look back and say there was all that information that we didn't want to process and really understand. So I'm going to try to, like with a little bit lame term for myself, actually. So if you're saying it's, it doesn't have to be decentralized, if you're telling me here's a digital wallet and I'm giving you this image and it's registered as, your, as our image in which we're giving it to you and maybe in the future it's going to be worth something and I'm handing it over to you. The, currently on the blockchain, that's where you can all verify. There is just one centralized place where you can verify who owns what, what was the entire trail, all that. Picasso, okay, that is a digital Picasso type picture. But if it's centralized and it's not sitting on the blockchain, then it's not Web 3.0. It's just, it just uh, a utility that moved into 2.0, right? Am I wrong about that? It depends on what your definition of Web 2.0 or Web 3.0 are. It, it sounds like you're defining Web 3 as a decentralized internet. And Not I, necessarily in this case. This, I understand the point that you're saying, look, it's going to be centralized. My point is, if you're saying it's, it's going to sit on uh, Amazon Web Servers, uh, right no. now, if you're looking let, at... Let me rephrase it. Okay. It can sit on Amazon Web Servers. It can sit on a blockchain. That's the beauty of I these understand. objects. Okay. It depends on the creator. So we provide tools. Yeah. You're the creator. Okay. You're like, I want this on the Polkadot blockchain. Okay. I want this on Solana. I want this on Cardano. Okay. I want this on Ethereum. Or... I don't want it on any of those blockchains. I want it on this database because I don't need to pay the extra amount of money or the time and cost to put it on those blockchains because mm -hmm. it doesn't need to be publicly verified blockchain. So it all boils down to the use case for that object. Makes and sense. to date, right now, the majority of these use cases can all sit on a database. We don't need the blockchain for the majority of brand, the use cases that brands need that when they want to provide value to their um, consumers. There'll be lots more use cases in the future. And I am, I am a huge believer in decentralization. It is where we're going, but, but it's going to take a while to get there. Um, I have a question for you. So you mentioned, this is sort of going back to one of the points you made about the 570 or some billion dollars in ad spend that, whatever that was. Now you mentioned that companies will have that revenue because they want to communicate directly with their customer. But the, the action that you're describing is basically last mile of the marketing funnel, right? Like you're talking about if I have already the, the connection with the customer, then I can exchange mm -hmm. some sort of loyalty program. So have you seen, uh, cause that's a huge budget of ad dollars. Have you seen other emerging disruptive texts that can solve for awareness 
or general top of funnel stuff that you could that you don't have to go through Facebook for or yeah. agencies for? But it's a great question and, and a very astute observation, but that is why first-party data is so valuable to the brands because they get the first-party data, essentially your email address, and permission to market to you. And this is what my company does. It's an enterprise-grade platform that, that enables these brands to do this legally and appropriately because, you know, when you have to follow all of the different... Uh, Castle and GDPR and all exactly. the yeah, CCPA um, or whatever. Yeah, to get all of those uh, licenses or, or approvals, I should yeah. say, um, um, it's very challenging. But once you have all that and then you can collect that first party data and then you can market to these people right in their wallet, that is what the brand wants. But how do they get that first party data in the first place? They use the traditional methods and and smart media actually does it across the board. We do all television media buying as well as full suite of digital. Media I love how buying. you're like, it's like coming full circle. Like all, yeah. All your career uh, is 100%. like hundred <laughs> percent. And yes, and, and they all build on to one another. And that's why when we created the NFT, like to me, the use, my use case that I was really passionate about is specifically this, is enabling brands to connect on a one-to-one -one level with their consumer and provide them value. Because being in digital marketing since the advent of, you know, internet marketing, seeing all of the money being sucked out by middlemen, yeah. you know, and the consumer getting nothing, it's like we can finally solve that. And so that's something worthwhile to yeah, solve. That would be a major disruption. This is one of those disruptions that happens once every couple decades sometimes yeah. in certain industries and that's a multi-industry disruption right it's going to be where i guess that's when you short meta yeah right that's <laughs> a, i mean it's not like they need any more shorting but um yeah that, that's going to be a major disruption for everybody yeah absolutely and you, you know you mentioned meta um do you have a question or you want me to dive No, go. No, I was looking at, I was look. I had some questions about the metaverse, but. Yeah, well, that's, um, I can touch yeah. on the metaverse now. Yeah. So, you know, Mark Zuckerberg gets so much grief for putting so much money into the metaverse and investing so heavily on that and betting the future of Facebook on it. Well, if he didn't bet on that, what was he going to bet on? Because the future in Facebook is, 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 is in a dire shape yeah. because of. The age of the cookie is over. The way we would track ads forever is over. Like, look at the upgrades with um, the new iOS platform. You have to like opt in everywhere and people just say, no, I don't want to be tracked. Every website you go to now, you have to allow cookies. Most people say no. That's, that's why I think that uh, he, he might do it right. Maybe it is the future. The thing is, it's a very long road uh, for him. I think that his bet was supposed to go against Amazon by acquiring Shopify saying, all right, so Shopify is the largest uh, platform for websites. If we acquire them, not just doing a partnership like we're doing right now, I can track them throughout. I can own that part where I understand that this is the person that came over. I have everything under one roof. And then as soon as, I, uh, as soon as you come into Facebook, you already have your wallet or Facebook, it's more Instagram, right? No one uses it. But your wallet is there just like an Amazon, and it would be probably more convenient to work to buy on Instagram than later on, on than what it is today on uh, on Amazon, right? Yeah. Because you'll buy on Amazon. And then part of what Shopify were trying to do, and I'm not sure at what stage they are, they're trying to acquire a lot of um, a lot of three uh, uh, 3PLs, shipping companies, where they process everything, so they can. Try to fully compete more effectively with Amazon with, with the shipping process. Probably Facebook has a little bit of a better chance. 
And if they were going in that route, that would probably be introducing cash flow fairly fast just from the integration and then adding a layer of shipping parts where you can actually have the products in, you can create a certain control, you can really go in and You're compete with it. You're saying this is a strategy they're deploying right now? No, they're not. Oh. They have not. And that is where I say he should have done this oh, I see. because it would have produced revenue fairly early. Right now, uh, Shopify is not a profitable company because of investments that they're making in acquiring all those shipmunks types yeah. companies, right? Where they could have been acquiring them, they're not big enough, they can acquire them for stocks, and then own the entire flow from, from seeing an image all the way to the thank you page, all the way through the email, everything else, and you can just create a wallet. You would probably see yourself using Amazon much less. Yeah. And then eventually competing also yeah, with the old shipping part. That would have been my move to go and satisfy midterm and then still invest. But give myself a couple years because that would have been a tough competition going after. Uh, he's not wrong about that, but it wasn't his only option. That's my. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't comment on the inner workings of his mind. I agree with you. There's probably a lot of roads he goes. He went down, but but he went all in here and good or bad business decision or not, it's great for the rest of us. The yes. reason why is because no other company can spend $10 billion in trying to make extraordinary <laughs> yes. technology for virtual reality and in and great software for the metaverse. They may fail in their software because to date they haven't, we haven't seen much, but the hardware is, is great for the entire industry. Absolutely. Yeah. I think this is actually going to be quite the fact that they're putting so much cash into it where we're going to see, we're going to bear those fruits. If, even if they're going to collapse, that, that investment was made and someone's going to bear those fruits. The, it's kind of like similar to me where the dot com created so much hype around the internet a little bit too early. So they started putting fiber optics in Antarctica. Yeah. And you said, okay, now you get internet everywhere because of the, the results of all that money that was put in. And now we enjoy that. Yeah, so. 100%. And... But speaking of the metaverse, which I think is really interesting, because just because of my like NFT 1.0 was 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 the gambling on these images and it's collapsed and 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 at the peak about a year ago, you know, we started hearing about the metaverse a lot and everyone got really excited. And the metaverse isn't new; it's like an immersive video game that's been playing yeah. for 20 years. Yeah. But what's new is consumer behavior and these tools where the average consumer will now have a wallet and a digital good. And so when NFTs became popular, they're like, well, why don't we have a more immersive environment to view and interact with this digital good that I just purchased? I need to put it on a wall and showcase it, mm -hmm. you know, if it's a piece of art. And so then companies like Decentraland and Sandbox, they exploded in popularity, even though it's a very lackluster experience. It's, it's kind of lame in yeah. there. It's, it, and, and then, you know, Facebook does its big pivot. so, but then so then like Decentraland and Sandbox, they're building, um, they're basically building an environment to support NFT 1.0. So I bought my, I bought my art, nice. Now I can hang it on my virtual wall, in my virtual house, in my in my metaverse. But ultimately, I still think you're you're building a product for a problem that shouldn't even exist in the first place. Yeah, yeah, and and it's this virtual world that people don't really, it's not all that great to hang out in. Now. We've all seen the movie Ready Player One, and yeah. for the listeners who haven't seen it, please watch it. It's a great film, and it, 
is what I believe will be the future. It is, yeah. you know, it's a very dystopian future, but I believe that the metaverse will be super immersive and people will live in it. Um, is that good or bad? I'm, I'm not placing judgment. What do you, what do you think that? Do way you, down the road. What, what do you think? Do you think it's going to be a 2D or 3D for everybody? I think it's going to be 3D, but that could be a decade away. But all that stuff just doesn't matter right now. What matters right now is what is the metaverse in the next few months? My opinion on metaverse 1.0 and the technology and software we're pushing out there is just a small enhancement to websites. Mm -hmm. Why don't we go from 2D to 3D? Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we go, click a button, the website all of a sudden expands. Yes. You're in there, you can talk to a sales guy, the merchandise is way better because now it's 3D, it spins around. And guess what? Your buddy can meet you there. You're like, I'm going to REI to buy a kayak. So you go to REI.com, you both log in at the same time, you get to walk around, look at five kayaks, talk to talk to the sales guy, and then maybe there's a professional athlete in there that's one of the best kayakers in the world, right? And you can talk to him or watch a film of him talking about this stuff, right? It's just much more immersive and engaging. So all it is is a simple upgrade to your website. And it's, it's, also, this... it's also an e-com buying experience problem. Exactly. Yeah. Now you got your wallet and your NFTs. You can get a little digital kayak and put it in there. Yeah. And if you collect five of them, maybe you get $10 off, right? They gamify the experience. It becomes more engaging and more fun. Yeah. So it's a much better buying experience. You can shoot zombies and, and hunt for treasure with all of your friends for the last 20 years on video games, right? You can run around yeah. and kill each other. But, for, but you've never been able to go online shopping with your friend. Now you can. That's Metaverse 1.0. You're going to log in. It'll only be, almost be like a video game. You walk around the store with your buddies. Um, and it's just a much more engaging, immersive, and ultimately valuable experience. Do you bother like, even like personally investing in any Metaverse anything right now? Well, Properties, for me, so... Nah, it's just for fun? I am not a... The land... The, 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 the big hype around Metaverse, land, especially in Decentralized Sandbox, it, it didn't make sense to me. Um, I kind of get it. Like you might as well buy a piece if it's like this fully built out space that you want to hang out in. And so it's like buying a website off the shelf that's already built. Yeah. But, but land, I, I'm not sold on that in the metaverse. But as far as how do I invest in and get involved in metaverse, uh, there's a stock called Meta, n not Facebook, but it's Metaball. And um, uh, it is a ETF uh, for all the companies that are public that are involved in metaverse technologies. So a, a small piece of your portfolio there, you, you know. It's yeah, so I, I just bought some. Well, so this is this is where I can relate because um, when you tell me you know, you need to buy a land, but then Metaverse is just a website, not a website. You'll have endless websites. Like why would I go and spend so much money in the central land if Facebook is going to come and take over, or maybe Apple? The central land is going to be a thing, and it's going to be just like FTX, right? It's going to disappear. All the money, no one's going to care. All this buying land for a million dollar right next to Snoop Dogg and so on. Ah. It doesn't. I don't. I don't know. It's but just, an ETF, I, I can, where it's like a, it's like you know. Now you have a couple different projects. ETF can go down like anything else. I, mean, I know, but I mean, at least it's. I, I mean, they're buying it's into like all the high de-risked slightly. I find because. Well, for, but the, the stocks that are traded in this ETF are are, are like Nvidia, Nvidia you okay. know, like Nvidia, graph, okay. yeah, Nvidia, and and that's different. Yeah. yeah, this is just publicly traded companies that provide the technologies for companies to build metaverses. And yeah. So I thought it'd be a good place to. If I was going to get out of crypto a little bit, what stocks would I invest in? And, yeah. and some stocks that actually uh, will participate in the future of the metaverse. And, and um, when you when you build out, I'm just still curious about. Sorry, I'm going back going back to your actual company. When you build this out, um, 
the mechanics of building a company, call it whatever you want, Web3, I don't care. We can just come up with a fake name for this iteration of what you're trying to build out. Um, but what, the mechanics of building out a company, is it difficult to build out a traditional like enterprise sales force? What's the revenue like, onboarding costs? Like all the metrics and KPIs you would normally look to when I'm trying to take a software company, B2C, B2B to market. How does that play over when you're building out something like this? That is, I'm sure Tam is, I don't know how you figure it out. Blue Ocean, probably. Like it's messy. It's not easy. Yeah, it's extraordinarily difficult. Uh, fortunately, I have an amazing partner. So uh, yeah. this guy, Tyler Mabius, who's the um, CEO uh, and and uh, the real brains behind um all of the execution of everything and, and a lot of the vision of, of, of what smart media technology is. Um, and, and a longtime entrepreneur himself. So, so yes, it's really hard to build an enterprise sales software, uh, both, both to build the software and then build the sales team. Um, but the, the real interesting nugget there is since we've been pushing NFTs since in this iteration through smart media technology since uh, the beginning of 2018, mm -hmm. well before anyone was buying them at all, there's no revenue, there's no money, there's no profit. Like it's, <laughs> I know it's an issue. <laughs> it is a lost leader. Yeah, yeah. So we were super fortunate that Tyler already had an ongoing business and we kind of rolled all these companies together. We rolled three companies together. So I started, um, at the time it was called Vadim Labs with him. And, uh, and that was the pure play NFTs for brands, right? And it was built on top of Block B. And then he had another company that was a digital, um, it was an, a, a digital uh, ad, um, basically a digital ad agency that really supported outdoor lifestyle brands. But he built a full tack, uh, stack of technology, like a demand side ad platform and all the analytics software and everything. And then we bought a television media buying company as well. So we combined a TV media buying company, his traditional um, digital media company, and then this new company that was going to take NFTs to brands. Those two other companies were highly profitable. So we had the okay. foresight and the vision yeah. to say, yeah. okay, we'll roll in a loss leader because we believe that the ad landscape's changing and we believe in this vision of, I mean, there wasn't anything called Web3 back then or you know, even NFTs, but what we believed is that through this new technology, through smart media objects, through these smart NFTs, we could shift how brands engage with their consumers on a one-to-one -one level, enable brands to provide value to consumers. But it took a long time for that to take off. And we didn't actually participate, even though I've been in the NFT space since the beginning, since before the beginning. Yeah. Uh, we did not participate in 1.0 because never in our wildest... You didn't buy any board apes. No, I didn't buy any board apes. <laughs> How could you? <laughs> you know, never in my wildest dreams did I think that gambling was going to be the first use case. And then buying and selling all these images was going to be the first use case. But it was. We thought it was going to be utility, like ticketing or loyalty. Yeah. And ticketing still hasn't come yet. But that's more politics versus technology. The technology's there, but... Ticketmaster and Live Nation have such a, a monopoly. Because all, it's funny because even, you know, it's a great point because all these ideas of different uh, NFT style projects, they, they were floating around way before NFTs became a thing. Look, uh, yeah. And every time someone came up with a new, uh, oh, this NFT can do this or that. I'm like, would you like to see my deck from five years ago? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, the, the thing is, this is, it goes back to marketing, right? If it wasn't... Um, Logan Paul and, and uh, Gary V promoting every day from the top of their lines NFT, 
most people wouldn't know what it is. And then luring in any celebrity, talking Paris Hilton, anyone goes, talks about NFT and why they're boring, buying board Ape and just, just creating all that, that hype over just buying digital images instead of understanding the utility behind NFT. And to understand, look, it's just a utility, but you really need to buy a computer-generated image. The 10,000 other ones were created equally just because people, other people that are celebrities are buying it that suddenly decide to be art collectors, digital art collectors. So it was, it was that hype that we, I guess, forgot what it was all about. You started about the utility behind this, and then it was kind of like, forget that. Let's just buy art. It's digital this time. Yeah, it can be used by NFT. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a great point. Like the frenzy happened. Yeah. People were making money. So everyone went into it. Mm. So, so it did a great service and disservice at the same time. The service is that it brought a ton of new entrants into the crypto space yeah. because before NFTs, the only people buying crypto were people that were into finance, into stocks, into cryptos, right? Like they, they were somewhat finance people. Yeah. Now it's, much more gamers and, and, and artists and collectors and people that don't care about finance but want to participate. So that was a great thing it did. You know, the negative thing was a lot of people have lost a lot of money. Um, when, you th when you mentioned that it was, it was tough to take this company to market, but how is it doing now? Like, is it, doing, is it profitable yet or are you? Yeah, it's, it's doing extremely well. Okay. Uh, we're, we're about to announce one of the, you know, largest credit card companies in the world, you know, mm -hmm. announce a, a handful of partnerships with a bunch of big companies where they're going to utilize our technology platform yeah. um, for, for, for their wallet. So you're seeing shifts, like you see shifts because now you have big brand names that are onboarding your tech. Like yeah, absolutely. Okay. Massive shifts. Huge brands and enterprises that, uh, and, and even the agency holding companies, they're all diving in because they know Web3 is the future. And how do you participate in Web3? How do you participate in Web3? If you're an agency, yeah. you have to have a wallet. You have to be able to provide those services. So they're using our technology. And the way this gets all tied back is our technology. Smart Media has built a massive proprietary stack, but it has built it on top of the Block V protocol. So Smart Media still uses V, our token that we issued in the ICO, to power it. And so, again, there's just a ton of utility in the token that we created because we're a massive company um, utilizing it. So you've done this obviously a few times. So I'm, I'm curious about lessons for entrepreneurs that are trying to build in the Web3 space. So raising money right now, I'm sure is probably pretty hard. But what advice would you give an entrepreneur who wants to build a company from scratch? Do they raise money? Do they try and bootstrap it? Do they get a technical co-founder? What's the, what's the game plan for somebody? Well, back to being opportunistic. So it's an individual answer for that individual. So what is that person's experience? like? So look at your close circle of influence and friends and lean in. Lean in. Is there a benefactor that's actually going to help support you? Can you support yourself for a while? What's your level of experience and expertise? How certain are you that you can make it 12 months without like going broke? Yeah. You know, so all those things uh, weigh in on the strategy of how do you move forward? And especially in the beginning, those are the most important aspects because any generic answer I mean, it's generic. What? Build a great plan, do your research, find money, talk to angels, go network. It's like, okay, but you know, you got to dig a little deeper and look at your own strengths and weaknesses and, and play into those. So I have a um, question. So pretty much every business you had, eventually you exit, you build them for exit. You, you do it just like you sell, just like I sold black boxes with makeup in it. 
well, eventually I sold that business, but but eventually you look at a business just like this, the same way I looked at black boxes. We wrap them up and we ship it. Um, is there going to be a point you think in your life that you're going to just keep a lifestyle business that you want to move on to your kids? Or there's always an exit strategy? Yeah, I mean, right now I would probably, for me, say more it's the exit strategy because my creative outlet, the way I'm artistic, is in business. Like, I mm. enjoy the deal. I enjoy seeing these new opportunities mm. and, and getting excited about them. I get excited about tons of opportunities. Very few of them are worthwhile, but I get excited about all of them. So that's actually what makes it fun. I get more excited about the ones I can push even farther forward. I'm most excited about what's about to come. I'm about to launch a Web3, a handful of companies in the Web3 space that all that revolve around entertainment, media, gaming. And, and I'm really, really excited about this next chapter because it builds upon all of the technology that I've built in the past and partners with a lot of those companies to lay the foundation to be able to take it to the next level. And I believe that this next suite of companies, which I'll announce probably in January, will be one of the ways that a lot of people get to experience my definition of Web3 for the first time. And my definition is simply that you have a wallet and you get digital goods in that wallet that are valuable to you. And, and then you have a sense of community. Um, and so I, I'm really excited to actually roll that out. And so your question is, do I want to have a lifestyle business? I don't know. We'll see what this turns into. I feel this is this is this next chapter for me will be a really big chapter and 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 I could be in it for a while, but it's a handful of companies. I know I will sell a number of them, hopefully that they're successful and I sell them in the short term. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just had one more point that I wanted to go into and I want to understand um, your perspective on this because it's very topical right now. And, and I guess it's, it's about central bank digital currencies. Yeah, CBDCs. I, I want to understand more about those because it's, it's a trending topic, but that's, technically what tether originally did yeah but without a central bank so what is your opinion there's a lot of concern about them because now you've digitized your dollars right and now the government's digitized their dollars i think they're doing a test run in japan if i'm not mistaken so what's your opinion on those are those going to be a replacement for tether for usdc is this something that's good bad well Good or bad is in the eye of the beholder. For the government, it's the best thing that's ever happened. For the citizen, it's potentially one of the worst things that's ever happened, especially for citizens in countries like China yeah, and, yeah. and countries where the government really uh, ex uh, exerts its power, doesn't care about the, the citizens so much. The reason it's so bad for them is because it, it provides technology for the perfect surveillance state, right? Because... With a CBDC, with a digital dollar, with a dollar that's, that's on a type of blockchain, the government will know every penny of every dollar you spent and where you spent it and can track it perfectly on an individual basis and can program that money because you've all heard that Bitcoin is programmable money. A CBDC can be programmable money. Guess what the first thing they're going to program is? Well, I'm going to take 30% of every transaction for my taxes right off the top, right? Mm. So... The reason why people are concerned is because the technology is there for the government to do extraordinarily intrusive things to its citizens with this technology. Um, we're somewhat protected in the United States more than a lot of these other countries 
think, and the reason why I wouldn't be so concerned as a U.S. citizen of a CBDC um, infringing upon your privacy, the best analogy and example is just surf the internet. You now have to click allow cookies on every single website, right? You get a warning and a pop-up yeah. everywhere you go. Yeah. And that's just to get permission to track anonymous web surfing data, not where you spend every penny of every dollar, right? Yeah. So think about the level of bureaucracy and legalities that the government would have to do to be able to successfully do that in the U.S. So I'm not so concerned about it, but they do. They will have the tools to do it. It's a bigger concern in, in other countries. Because that's like, if I if I just, you know, I wrote down a whole bunch of like trending crypto Web3 topics. I mean, we've already spoken about FTX to death with other people before, so we don't have to belabor that point again. <laughs> it's like, it's all it's in the news, yeah. like unless there's something revolutionary that you want to speak about. But CBDC is one thing that's obviously very top of mind for people. Um, I'll throw it to you. Is there any other things that are circulating in crypto, Web3, DeFi that are just trending things that people should know about, your opinion on it, that I'm probably not smart enough to research? Well, <laughs> well you know, the, the thing I, since you asked, and since you did mention FTX and BlockFi, and, and, you know, this crypto crash is much more significant than any to date. Because in the past, all the crypto crashes were simply because people were getting out of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. They're like, mm -hmm. something's going on. I'm, I'm selling Bitcoin or I'm selling my crypto. I'm going to sit on the sidelines. That's not what happened here. This is a new industry, DeFi, decentralized finance, all these exotic financial products built on blockchains. So all these centralized companies now using blockchain technology to offer financial products to their users was created over the last two years and it exploded in value. And what's taken place is these centralized companies on top of decentralized technology are failing. And so this is a systemic failure of a new industry that's on top of blockchain. That's what's caused this crash. It started with Terra Luna. Yeah. So the failure of an experiment, of an experiment of an algorithmic stable coin. And that had a cascading effect because like BlockFi had a lot of exposure and they had a lot of exposure to Three Arrows and to FTX. And now BlockFi is finally in bankruptcy. And BlockFi actually was run by some fairly sophisticated operators and they're to it, right now, it doesn't appear that there was any fraud or anything there. It's just some, some bad decisions. Um, but they got swept up in this. And there's a lot of companies that are going bankrupt in this space, causing this mm -hmm. um, massive crash we're experiencing. But isn't that also because the market just went down and traders are traders and the mostly they were traders? But the market went down. Uh, but that's not what necessarily caused the, the whole crash. So the market went you down. Don't think so? And it's, well, well. Terra Luna was a big part of it, and then fraud was it was a big part of it. Mismanagement. Absolutely, it was bad. But I mean, the market started declining, and on the same day, the same minute, the same second, so was the crypto market, right? So yeah. if 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 we if we take the point where the bear market start, I would say it's the day where uh, Netflix reported their earning. They beat their earning, but because of one word that their CFO said, it they lost twenty percent. And at the time, I think they're two hundred billion dollar market yeah. cap. And for that reason, at the same second, so did the the, the crypto market. Right. So it went down with the stock market. And then obviously those didn't help, yeah. right? Right. So it had this cascading effect. But what I was sharing is it's not just people selling crypto, which is causing this massive decline. It's these companies in DeFi failing. But what I wanted to bring up and, and leave the audience with, don't blame DeFi, right? Mm -hmm. DeFi is an amazing advancement in 
kind of this ecosystem in the yeah. technology, the, 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 the financial services that these decentralized financial companies are going to start creating and delivering really will transform how people do banking. It will create much more global inclusion for people to use financial services, for people that don't have access to good financial services. Now they will. So let's call it DeFi 1.0. It just had its spectacular yes. implosion. But DeFi 2.0, all those things will be improved upon. And ideally, they'll offer better, safer products in the future. Because look at the banking. Look at traditional finance. Banks, in the, the, there's still massive meltdowns in the most highly regulated industries. Yeah. So you can't just blame it on crypto. So I do want to make sure that people don't think that DeFi is dead and that these financial products are dead just because some companies fail. Do you how long do you think it's going to take to restore confidence for the average, maybe non-industry person? Yeah, it, it might be a little while. But this is the beauty, at least of my focus, yes. <laughs> which is a non-financial kind of blockchain-based businesses. A lot of Web3 stuff. Do you see, do you see trickle over? There, there's a lot of triple go. Like without all the financial stuff, we wouldn't have had the idea of cryptocurrencies and wallets. And then it turned into NFTs, which brought in other people. And now it's turning into Web3, which is bringing in the brands and that they can use all this technology to better engage with their consumers. And then throughout this next year, I think what's going to drive the next big bull run will be recognizable web three projects that have actually delivered on the promise and then people will start believing again and pouring mm -hmm. more money in, in so the if say if say in, a, in the next five i don't know do you think in the next five ten years we're going to start seeing young people start buying again with uh with eth and oh, pay I, each other with ETH would you say five or ten months or years no no years years oh i see i think in months well so right now the trade around crypto is declining right because majority is their investors but then when will come the time where a lot of the trade, I don't know if I want to say the majority or not, but, but just say a, a, a large percentage of the trade is going to be around just day-to-day -day transactions. Like retail, where, like retail yeah, retail, versus... I'm, I'm paying you to, do, to cut my, my, my grass or something like this. This way you don't pay tax. A lot of people were doing it already. Um, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to start coming back. Right now they don't want to touch it because it's too volatile. But... I, when do you think it's going to be stable in terms of volatility when they'll use a stable coin for that? Like, okay. it, it, Bitcoin isn't meant to replace cash, right? It is too yeah. volatile. All these cryptocurrencies are too volatile. Anything that, you know, you need a stable coin. And, and what's going to happen is there will be CBDCs. So while I said people should be scared of the amount of control that a CBC can offer, it will also offer a ton of benefits and the ease of use. You'll be able to send money globally instantly and for free, you yeah. know? And so C CBDCs will have a huge use as well, but there is a lot of concern for them. And so something like what you're saying is when are they going to use kind of cryptos? They'll probably use this, a digital dollar. So you're saying, you're saying they're not going to use ETH. They're probably going to use Tether or some stable coin. This way they don't have to worry about volatility unless eventually ETH became stable. Because but that's also, by the way, people are already doing that. Like USDC, but not enough as a volume. Because no, no, no. Most no, it, of most of it was ETH. If you were if you were to buy any NFT or anything, it was all ETH because right? it was the only option at the time. Yes, that's why that's the it. layer twos exploded in popularity because ETH was too slow and too expensive. So then yeah. Cardano and Solana and Polkadot and everyone else uh, and and Polygon, you yes. know, came out. Yeah. No, I just find it fascinating. Like building in this space is so 
it's like it's tumultuous, but it's exciting. But that's anything yeah. disruptive, right? It's a massive roller coaster. It is. Okay. Um, what do you want to leave the audience with? Um, final thoughts on the industry, and then also where can they like reach out to you? Check out all the stuff you're working on. Yeah. No, you can find me on uh, Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn at Reeve underscore Collins on Twitter uh, at Reeve Collins on everywhere else. Um, but my final thoughts are: Look, we all experienced a lot of pain, right? Like especially in the crypto space this last uh, six months, and it, and it's really sad. But it doesn't take away from the the massive potential of the technology and for where we're going. So, just you know, when people say NFTs are dead and the metaverse is dead and DeFi is dead and Bitcoin's dead, it's just it's just not true. So the quote I will leave everyone with is a quote by Victor Hugo, and it says that the only thing stronger than all of the armies in the world is an idea whose time has come. Mm. So when you think about that, what Bitcoin is, it's a new type of money. And this is the first time in history that anyone other than kings and governments could create not only their own money, but their own monetary system. This was never possible before. And so that quote is so, so perfect for, for, for this industry because this is the most coveted things that governments protect and all the armies in the world will fight to protect their, their money. But guess what? Now the average user, now the citizens have the ability to build their own money and their own monetary systems. And that's what's happening. That's why cryptocurrency is so important. I love it. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. My pleasure. My pleasure. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. 
it's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professional to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed 
survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 